0: We've already thanked you, our Father, for the greatness of your grace, the kindness of your grace, the extent of your grace, the magnificence of your grace. And now we pause and give you thanks for how you have opened up to us some of the inner workings of the Godhead so that we might see the richness of the salvation you have provided for us. So that we might not just see what we have received, but so that we might see how you worked to bring it about. Would you give us eyes to see these truths and would you give us hearts to respond to these truths? Would you, would you drive into us the truth of the greatness of this salvation in such a way that we would be moved to profound worship and gratitude this morning? For here there is nothing for us to do but to wonder and to worship for what has been granted to us. Would you accomplish that in our lives and our hearts this morning? And would you give me discernment and clarity and accuracy and precision and joy as we unfold these things together? We pray these things in the name of Christ and for His great glory. Amen. Unless you are a devout historian, you likely don't know the name Nicholas Winton. Nicky Winton, as he is known to his friends, died four years ago at the age of 106. Now that's pretty remarkable. But that's not the most remarkable thing about Nicky Winton's life. His life began somewhat unremarkably. He was the Jewish son of Anglo-Bavarian family that emigrated to England in the 18th century. He was a banker and then a stockbroker in the 1930s, and it was in the late 30s, specifically in December of 1938, that his life took a dramatic turn. It was in December that his friend Martin Blake came to him. He and Martin had planned on taking a skiing trip to Switzerland and Martin asked if they would postpone that trip and instead if, if Nicky would go with him to Prague in Czechoslovakia. Winton agreed and they arrived in Prague on New Year's Eve nineteen thirty eight and were met by the British Committee for Refugees from Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia had been inundated by refugees from Germany and Austria primarily and and Prague's population had grown by some 250,000 people as as people were fleeing from uh, the German nation and many of those obviously who made their way to Czechoslovakia were Jewish Meeting with the committee, Winton quickly became determined to at least help the children of these families, and so he began meeting with families in his hotel room and, and taking names and getting backgrounds and trying to formulate a plan of how he might be able to help some of these children leave Czechoslovakia and make their way to safety in England. In January of 1939, just a few weeks after he arrived, he took his first group of 20 children, from Prague to London. Arriving in London, he, he began w- returning to his work as a stockbroker, spending his days as a stockbroker, and then at night he would, he would work on a plan to bring these children over and, and began filling out travel documents and organizing permits for these children to make their way to London because of the slowness of the British government to act and because of scarcity of funds to pray for the 50-pound bonds that were being required for each of the children that were coming over and because of his sense of urgency about the situation, uh, became began uh, forging documents in order to get the children over more quickly. In the months that followed, he arranged for eight rail transports filled with children to come from Prague, To London. He had a night scheduled for September 1, 1939. That that transport was canceled by the Germans, and the 250 children that were destined for that train, instead of going to London, made their way to concentration camps. It was the last opportunity that Winton had to bring children over. But but over the, the eight months that he was able to bring children over from Czechoslovakia, he saved six hundred and sixty four children five hundred and sixty one of those Jewish he has been called the British Schindler that's a that's a great story of salvation but oh friend you have a much greater story of salvation that you know and it is our desire this morning to to draw attention to the greatness of the story of salvation of the one who has worked behind the scenes of our lives to draw us who were in danger into the saving grace of Jesus Christ. This is, this is the story of the eternal God who has elected his children to salvation and then he has secured and produced their salvation at the exact right time. This is the story of sovereign salvation and sovereign mercy told by the apostle Paul in Romans chapters 9 through 11. It is the story of those chapters that God is faithful to save His children. He is faithful to the salvation plan for Israel and He is faithful to the salvation plan for us. And the plan that, that Paul begins to unfold for us starting in verse 6 of chapter 9 and through verse 18 of that chapter reveals that salvation is always the result of God's sovereign, merciful, and faithful choice. God's salvation is always sovereign, always merciful, and friends, always faithful. He will accomplish the very thing He has promised for us. My friend, if you this morning have been saved from God's wrath, that, that saving act to free you from the wrath of God is the result of God's sovereign mercy on your life. And and everyone whom you know that has been saved from God's wrath has been saved by that same sovereign, gracious, kind, merciful election. In verses 6 through 18, we are going to see five demonstrations of God's faithfulness, five demonstrations of God's faithfulness. We looked at the first two of these 3 weeks ago. And my intention this morning was to look at the next two today and the last one next week. Um, About 6.30 this morning, I just thought, I just don't think we're going to make it. And in the first service, we didn't make it. So we're not going to make it in here either. And so we're going to look at the third of these demonstrations of God's faithfulness in verses 7 through 9. Let me just remind you as we begin how God has demonstrated Himself to be faithful to His salvation. The first truth is given to us in verse 6, the first demonstration. It is that God is faithful. His promises do not fail. I've already alluded to the fact that in the first five verses, the apostle is thinking about the nation of Israel and thinking about her position and all of the things that had been granted by God to this Great nation, their, their particular place in, in sovereign history, in God's history of the world, and how God has chosen them and selected them to be His, and the reality that the nation has not as a nation been converted and the nation as a nation has not received the fulfillment of the promises that were made to Abraham. Yes, individuals along the way in the nation of Israel were saved, but, but the totality of the nation has not yet been saved. And, and as Paul thinks back about Romans chapter 8 and this, and this glorious culmination of of the working of God's plan of salvation and, and all that the Spirit does. Remember, 20 times He identifies the work of the Spirit in Romans chapter 8 and all the things that the Spirit has done for us and the gloriousness of this salvation. He is anticipating that some would say, well, yeah, Paul, but what about Israel? God hasn't saved Israel and He promised salvation to Israel. And if Israel hasn't been saved to a promise that was made thousands of years ago, what about us? Will we be safe? Will we be saved? God hasn't been faithful to Israel. Why should we expect that He will be faithful to us? Is God faithful? Can I trust God? And Paul answers that anticipated question with an immediate no in verse 6. Notice the beginning of verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though God has been stopped. It is not as though God won't yet fulfill His promises. It is not as though God is untrustworthy. When the apostle uses this little phrase that we see in the middle of that first um portion of verse six, the word of God. He's not using it in the sense that we typically think about it. We typically think, well, the word of God, that's the scriptures, that's the Bible, that's the totality of of God's revelation. Here the apostle is thinking about it much more particularly. He's thinking about the word of God in relation to the word by which he revealed his covenant promises to to Abraham and to to Moses, to the nation, to, to David, and then to Jeremiah. And and all of those promises um, are constitute his word, his, his covenant with the nation. And Paul is saying it is not as though the covenant that was begun with Abraham and and we see unfolded all through Old Testament history, it is not as though that has failed. The, the promises that God made to Israel will yet be fulfilled. Now he's gonna unfold this for us over these three chapters Romans 9, 10 and 11 but let me just give you a preview we've already alluded to it a couple times but notice chapter 11 verse 28 speaking about the nation of Israel the apostle says 11:28 from the standpoint of the gospel they Israel are enemies for your sake but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the sake of the fathers, for the sake of the promises that were made to the fathers, Israel is still loved. God hasn't forsaken. God hasn't failed them. God hasn't left them behind. And notice what he says in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be revoked. God God has made a promise. He cannot go back on the promise. He is God. He cannot fail to do what He has promised. He must do what He has promised. God cannot fail. God has not rejected His people. God will save His people Israel. The nation of Israel can be confident of His salvation of her. And friends, we can be confident of His salvation of us. He is faithful in all of His ways and He has promised salvation to Israel and He has promised salvation to us and He will fulfill His promises. God is faithful. His promises do not fail. His promises cannot fail. There's another demonstration of God's faithfulness. It's given to us at the end of verse 6. It is that that God is faithful, his election does not fail. Notice back in verse 6 again, in the middle of the verse, he has the little word conjunction for, and that word for provides a reason for what he has just said. So he has said the word of God hasn't failed. How is it, Paul, that God's word has not failed? Because he said, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And and with that statement, the Apostle is making a statement about the nature of the term Israel. Israel certainly can refer to the national identity, but here he's saying that the term Israel doesn't just refer to a national or political identity, but it also refers to a spiritual identity. So even though they are in Israel, not all of those who are in Israel physically are descended from Israel. There's, there is another kind of Israel. There is a spiritual kind of Israel by which they might be identified. And th- these are promises that were given to the nation, but not everyone in the nation believes in the promises the way Abraham did, and thus not everyone who has the national identity of Israelite has the spiritual identity of Israelite. This is the same thing that the Apostle spoke of earlier in this very same letter. In chapter 2, as he thinks about the Jews, and he thinks about their um, disobedience and their rebellion against God, He summarizes that section, chapter 2, verse 28, and says this, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, that is not by the keeping of the law, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So it is spiritually appraised, not not naturally accomplished. It is it is spiritually granted, not not given by works. It is, it is not for the sake of the glory that comes from men, but it is for the sake of the glory that comes from God and to God. It is inward and not outward. It's an inward renewal, not an outward transformation. And so he is simply saying that in, in order to be a true Israelite, one must believe in the in the Christ as the Messiah. You have to follow Jesus Christ in order to be a true Israelite. But there's something else that's going on when when Paul says they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. He's also introducing the idea that, that some are excluded from spiritual Israel. Not all natural national Israelites have been saved and not all national Israelites have been individually chosen and individually selected for salvation. Paul is introducing a theological concept that's going to dominate the rest of this chapter and then into chapters 10 and 11 as well. We'll see it articulated much more clearly next week in verse 11, speaking about Isaac's sons. Jacob and Esau, he says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, God's plan, God's intention, God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. And that word choice is not just the word choice. It's a word that typically is translated elected or election so that God's election, God's elective purposes, God's decree, God's plan of who would be his would stand and, and it would stand on the basis at the end of the verse of his call. And so we have three words here that particularly focus on God's God's choosing, God's designing, God's planning all those who would be His. It's His purpose, it's His choice, it's His calling. It's, it's His purpose, it's His election, it's His calling. And that's, that's hinted at by the apostle at the end of verse 6 when he says, not all Israel are descended from Israel. Not all have been elected. Not all have been designed for salvation. And we're going to continue to unfold this doctrine of election over the next few weeks. But let me just give you a definition. I think this is actually on your outline as well. It's a definition that comes from Louis Burkhoff in his very helpful systematic theology. Uh, He defines election this way. Election is that act of God whereby He, in His sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. More briefly, it may be said to be God's eternal purpose to save some of the human race in and by Jesus Christ. So it's God's action it's His sovereign will. It's His good pleasure. It is not on the basis of anything meritorious in anyone, either by position or by action. It is all a special grace and it is all to produce an eternal salvation. And remember, all of this in verse 6 is designed by Paul to address the anticipated question, is God faithful to keep His promise? Will Will God keep His promise, particularly to Israel and particularly for salvation? And and Paul's answer is yes. God is a promise-keeping God. God is faithful to His promise. Everyone who has been chosen for salvation will be saved. If God has made a promise for salvation, He will keep it. If He's made a promise of sonship to anyone, that one will be made His child. In fact, God's elective plan is a provision of His mercy to those who deserve His wrath. Just just look down at verse 23 in Romans chapter 9. We'll see this in a few weeks. God might have demonstrated His wrath. This is verse 22. Might have demonstrated His wrath by pouring out His wrath on everyone who deserved it, which is all men. And by doing that, He would have made His power known. But what if He... What if he withheld that wrath and endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if, he, what if he withheld his wrath and didn't pour it out on people who deserved it? Verse 23, He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. <laughs> he prepared and planned for some to receive glory so that the greatness of his grace would be exposed. And notice what he says in verse 24. Even us whom he called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. This is, this is a promise and this is grace and this is God's faithfulness not only to the Jewish people, but also us Gentiles who have been grafted into the promises that He has made. This is, this is Paul's way to prepare us to see the greatness of God's salvation, His faithfulness to us in securing and providing that salvation for us. And then what follows are three illustrations of God's elective work. Isaac, Jacob, and Pharaoh. We'll look at Isaac this morning, Jacob next week, and then Pharaoh next. The following week, five demonstration of God's faithfulness. He is faithful. His promises don't fail. His election doesn't fail. Number three, God is faithful. His election of Isaac is typical. His election of Isaac is typical. Notice verse seven, building on the same idea. He says, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And he's continuing that idea But giving a specific illustration of it, he says, verse 7, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, just being in in Abraham's physical lineage is not enough. To receive the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you have to be part of the right line that comes from Abraham. And just just think about this, and we'll see this unfolded in this passage. Abraham had multiple sons and grandsons who were the head of nations and people. So Isaac and Jacob were the head of the nation of Israel. Ishmael became the head of various Arab nations and people groups. And Esau was the head of the Edomites and the father of the Edomites. So... And the apostle is going to unfold for us this truth that only those who are descendants from Abraham in the lines of Isaac and Jacob are recipients of the promise. And even more, it's not just that that they're physically in the line of Isaac and Jacob, but they also have to be spiritually in the line of Isaac and Jacob. In other words, salvation is not a Jewish birthright. And and in the following verses, the apostle is going to make that clear. and we want to see how the election of Isaac is typical for all salvation. So notice, first of all, in verse 7, how God chose Isaac. And, and the way God chose Isaac is, is going to be very similar to what we see about Jacob in verses 10 to 13 next time. The first thing that we want to recognize about how God chose Isaac is that God made a call. God made a call. God, God made a choice He used the line of Isaac to complete his promises that he made to Abraham. And and notice how the apostle makes this clear. He says in the middle of verse 7, But through Isaac your descendants will be named. And and here we have in verse 7, a quotation from Genesis chapter 21. So keep uh, your finger or a piece of paper or a pencil or something in Romans chapter 9. And come back with me to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. There are, if I remember correctly, 63 quotations from the Old Testament um, in the book of Romans. 63 direct quotations and then more allusions beyond that. But 63 times the apostle quotes from the Old Testament. More than any other book in the New Testament. So more quotations from the Old Testament in Romans than even Hebraic books like the book of Hebrews and the book of Matthew, uh, books that lean very heavily on the Old Testament. And, and of all 63 quotations from the Old Testament, more than half, 33 are made in chapters 9 to 11. So, so Paul is wanting us very clear to, clearly to understand that God's choosing of the nation of Israel and his sovereign purposes being worked out in salvation is not something new, but it is an idea that has been rooted deeply in the truths of the Old Testament. And, and here in, um, verse 7, verse 8 of, uh, of, uh, Romans 9 is the first of those uh, references from the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham is um, is concerned because Isaac has been born, and Isaac um, showed up, and now Sarah is jealous about Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael is 13 years old. Ha- um, Sarah is concerned that maybe something might go askew. And she wants her son to receive the promises that were made to Abraham. And so she sends Hagar away. And the Lord says to uh, Abraham in verse 11, The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. He's worried about Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, verse 12, Do not be distressed because of the lad, because of Ishmael and your maid, Hagar, Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. This is, this is God's choice of Isaac. This, this has nothing to do with Isaac's preeminence. This has nothing to do with Abraham's preeminence. This has nothing to do with Sarah's preeminence. This has everything to do with God and his choice. There's no advantage that Isaac has. His only advantage is that God chose him. God said it's through Isaac that this will come about. In fact, we know that this isn't Abraham's choice because back in chapter 17, Abraham had a a different idea. Abraham says to God, verse 18 of Genesis 17, Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, God, would you just, would you just simplify this process and would you make it Ishmael who is the recipient of the promises and I'll be satisfied? And verse 19 of Genesis 17, but God said, No. Sarah will bear you a son and you will call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. You notice all the pronouns there? Um, Not you, but I will establish, I will make my covenant and it will be an everlasting covenant that I make for all of his descendants after him. It's, It's all about God. It's all about God's choosing. It is all about God's work. It is all about God's direction. This isn't isn't Abraham's choice. This is God's choice. It's also not Sarah's choice. Remember remember chapter 18, what we just read a few minutes ago? Verse 10 tells us that that when the person who was there, one of the three men who was there, made the announcement, Sarah laughed. Sarah's saying, no, 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 not... We don't need, we don't need another son. We have a son. And that's enough. It, it, it's not gonna come through me. And then, and then the Lord clarifies who it is who's speaking, verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, it's not just a guy, it's the Lord God of the universe. And he says again, I will do this. I will return and at the next time, at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. I will do this. I will do this. This is this is God's choice. This is God's plan. This is God's intention. And and as we get back to Romans chapter 9 verse 7 you can pull your finger out and uh, go back to Romans 9 verse 7. Notice what he says at the end of that verse. He says through Isaac your descendants will be named. It's not just it's not just that That they're going to call the people that flow out of Isaac, um, those who come from Isaac, Isaacites, I guess you'd call them. That's not his point. The the word they're named is actually the word called. Through Isaac, your descendants will be called. This is this is the divine call of God to bring people into unique relationship and unique fellowship with Him. This is the same word that we saw in verse 28 of chapter 8. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So He had a plan and a purpose and He sovereignly called and drew and compelled those who were His to come to know Him. This is the same thing that the Apostles also speaks of in chapter 4. Again, as he thinks about Abraham and as he thinks about Abraham's salvation, he says about Abraham, chapter 4, verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, watch this, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist the calling of god the work of god that brings salvation to a man is is god's sovereign uh, drawing and compelling and luring someone to him so that those who did not have life are made to have life and and the only way to have life is to be called by god and And when we are called by God, he emphasizes in 4.17, that which did not exist comes to be in existence. The only way to have existence in the kingdom of God is to be called by God. And here, God's call is through Isaac for a particular people to come into fellowship with God through the fulfillment of God of a covenant. And when God says, it is through Isaac that your descendants will be named, he also means this, it is through Isaac. And Abraham, it is not through Ishmael. I I, I know you want Ishmael, but it's not through Ishmael. It is through Isaac and it is only through Isaac. Now, that does not mean that God is ungracious to Ishmael, there is still much grace that is extended by God to Ishmael. So it says in um, Genesis 21, um, verse 18, um, "Do not fear," he says. 21:17. God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Um, God has heard the voice of Ishmael crying, and he God says to Hagar. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him for by the hand for I will make a great nation of him. So so while Ishmael was not the recipient of the Abrahamic promise, there is still much grace that is extended to Ishmael. Though though Esau would not receive the promise, there is much grace that is extended to Esau, and we will see that in, in more detail next week. What, what I simply want you to see this morning in verse 7 is that it is God who has made a call. It is God who has directed. It is God who has drawn. It is God who has compelled the people of Israel to become His through Abraham and through Isaac. How did God choose Isaac? God Himself alone made a call. Also, God made a promise. God made a promise. This is verse 8. Paul expands the idea in verse 8 that he brought up in verse 7. That is. So how is it that the descendants will be called through Isaac? That is. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. So so there are two kinds of people. There are children of the flesh and there are children of God. And when he says children of flesh he's he's not talking about something sinful. He's simply talking about physical lineage. So So it's not the people who have physical lineage from Abraham that are children of God or are the child of God. This little phrase, the child of God, is a rare phrase that's used in the New Testament. It's only used five times in the New Testament. Only Paul and John use this phrase. And in fact, Paul has just used it for us in chapter 8, verse 21, speaking about creation. And, and, and the, the futility of creation, the suffering of creation, the, the, the fact that creation doesn't work well. It says in verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, so creation doesn't work right. Things don't, don't work right in this world. The, the created world has anomalies and problems. And the created world in a sense is longing for salvation and that, that salvation for the created world will be set right through the salvation that comes to the children of God. So when Paul uses that term in verse 21 of chapter 8, he uses it in the same way that he and John use it in every other place, and it is to refer to those who are rightly related to God through salvation. It's, it's a way of saying we belong to God. We have fellowship with God. We've been adopted into the family of God. And how do you get that position As a child of God. Notice what else he says in verse 8. They are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And here, he puts three terms in parallel. The children of God, and then the children of promise. So, it takes more than just being a child of the flesh to be a child of God the children of promise so he's equating those two terms child of God children of promise they are regarded as descendants so all three terms refer to the same position to be a child of God comes as a result of being a recipient of the promise of God now think about Isaac why was Isaac born? Isaac was not born because of the natural working of Abraham and Sarah. They had tried their entire married life to have children. And God said, no, no children. He closed the womb. And the only reason that the womb was opened... Genesis 17 and then again in 18, God shows up and says, I'm going to make a promise. And in chapter 18, he says, let me be specific about this promise. By this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And it is only because God made that promise that, that her womb was opened. And it is, it is, friends, only because the promise of God that any man is ever saved. I want you to notice something else about this verse. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And that word regarded is sometimes translated elsewhere in the New Testament considered or reckoned. And if you're thinking theologically with me, you're thinking, I wonder if it also is translated justified. Yes, it is. This is the primary word for justification, to be declared righteous. And so let's read it with that sense, the children of the promise are justified as descendants. It's justification, spiritual sonship, only comes through the gift of God's justifying work that comes through Jesus Christ. Christ. Only those who respond in faith to the justifying work of Christ are, um, are saved. This is the same thing that the apostle speaks of again in chapter 4 about Abraham. So chapter 4 verse 13, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So if Abraham would come to be an heir of the promise, it had to come by means of justification that was appropriated through faith. It's God's justifying work. It is the same thing that um, that God says also in verse 20. Uh, or the Paul says also in verse 20 in regards to Abraham, yet with respect, verse 20, of the promise, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, verse 22, so that therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Abraham receives the promise by faith in the imputed righteousness that comes from God in the promise of the Messiah. And glory upon glory, notice verse 23 of chapter 4, now not only for His sake was it written that it was credited to Him or imputed to Him or considered for Him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of or for our justification. We come to faith in receiving the promises of God in the same way that Abraham did, in the same way that Isaac did, in the same way that those who are part of spiritual Israel did by faith in the promise of God about the Messiah who would save. Here's the point. Here's the lesson of verse 8. The spiritual descendants of God have been decreed and planned by God. To be a child of God, one must be chosen by grace and then believe in faith. As one commentator has well said, what counts is grace, not race. It's not about physical heritage. It's not lineage. It's not our position. It's not our position as Israelites. It's it's our lineage. Or in Christ. It's our obedience and faith. Um, I want you to also notice that God alone acted to fulfill the promise. Um, God alone acted to fulfill the promise it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, because this is the word of promise, verse nine at this time, I will come, and Sarah will have a son so So, how do we know that it comes through a promise, and that promise um, is only by God? because verse nine, the promise that was made in Genesis eighteen that God said, I will come and I will work and I will labor and because of my work, Sarah will have a son. This is this is all an emphasis on the activity of God. He will come and in His coming, the promise will be fulfilled. There was nothing in man that produced fulfillment. It was God's work alone. I will come and then when I come, Sarah will have a son. And the glory is this. Genesis 21, verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Not only did God promise a son, But God fulfilled a promise. It was God and God alone that made and fulfilled the promise. Now what I want you to see with this is that as God chose Isaac, God's choice of Isaac is typical of salvation. God's the way God chose Isaac and the way God brought about Isaac's salvation is typical for the way he brings all men to salvation. Notice verse seven. God does not choose all to be his children. So Isaac is included and Ishmael is excluded from the promise. Now we're going to unfold this next week. I, I don't think that, that um, when he talks about Isaac and Ishmael and later Jacob and Esau, he's not talking about them individually, but he's talking about them nationally. So he's not talking about the individual salvation of Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael, but he is talking about the national salvation and the national promise But the point I want you to see is that some are included and some are excluded. My friends, in your life, some are included and some are excluded. And God has not chosen all to be his children. And God does actively choose who will be his children. God is very specific. We emphasize this. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Verse 7. This is God's choice, this is God's direction, and this is always God's direction. It's always God's purposes that bring about salvation. It's also typical in that God's choice is a decision that is made in eternity. That is, God's decision happens before before people arrive on the scene. God is not responding to a man to see what a man will do. God is, God is initiating the plan. God is initiating the purpose. God is intentionally designing those who will be His. And we know from Ephesians chapter 1 that this is a choice that is made in in the eternal past as a a promise within the three members of the Trinity God's choice is not based on any human activity it's not based on on any human position God doesn't choose because of the fleshly position because they're children of Abraham he does not choose on the basis that they are Abraham's sons or Sarah's sons or anyone else it's not on the basis of position in fact we'll see this even more clearly next week in Jacob and Esau God's choice is a choice that is received by faith God is the one who justifies remember it says we are regarded the promise those who are children of the promise are regarded are justified as descendants but but the one who receives justification is the one who receives it by faith if if you believe that God has acted on your behalf to save you you will be saved friends This is a truth. The things that are unfolding here are truths for us as believers. They're they're not for us to apply and say, well, I wonder if you are in or you're out. We don't know. Nobody carries a stamp on their forehead and says, chosen, elected, unchosen, unelected. That's not there. Friends, we make the offer to everyone. In fact, Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, how will they call unless they have not believed? How will they believe unless they have, if they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher, without a proclaimer? How will they hear unless someone says, in other words, go and tell and talk so that they will hear so that they can respond in faith? And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, the offer is there for you to trust Him, to to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, your sins were on Him and God poured out His wrath on Him and God was satisfied with the payment of His righteousness. And if you believe in Him and you believe to the point where you follow Him and He captivates you and compels you so you are obedient to Him, your life is transformed to Him, He will save you. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I urge you, I compel you. Your your responsibility is not to sort out, did He call? Your responsibility is to respond in faith. You trust and you believe. And if you believe, then you will know, I've been called, because only those who are called can respond in faith. God's choice is received by faith. God's choice culminates in God's miraculous word. God alone acts to fulfill His promise. God alone saves. God will accomplish His salvation. Now the question you've got to be asking if you're paying attention is this. Is God's choice unfair? It just It's just not fair. It just doesn't seem right. And, and Paul anticipates that. Notice verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? Is God unfair? Paul's asking. Notice how he answers immediately. May it never be. God God is not unfair. Listen friend. If God had not acted, no one would be saved because no one chooses God. No one wants God. That's Romans chapter 3. No one pursues Him. No one seeks Him. No one desires Him. No one is capable of doing anything to please Him. Friends, if God hasn't acted, everyone is damned. It is only because God in His grace has acted that some are saved. Listen, the real problem is not why He chose some and not others. The real problem is why He chose anyone at all. Why would He choose me? Why would He desire to bring me into fellowship with Him? Now listen, friend. If God hasn't chosen us, we are all condemned and we are all hopeless. How how is this truth then? A comfort for us? It is a comfort for us in these ways. If you have been chosen... You cannot be unchosen. You are safe. Your salvation is not on the basis of what you have merited. You could never do enough to merit your salvation, but Christ can and Christ did merit enough for your salvation. Oh, friend, if you are are in Christ, if you have been chosen by Him, saved by Him, you cannot be unchosen, unelected, unadopted. That's another way of saying if you have been chosen by God, you cannot lose your position as God's son. It it has well been said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But friend, you can't because you are secure in the one who has made a promise to you if you're in Christ. And then this is a comfort to us as well in that it is not our responsibility to save anyone we 're not responsible for salvation i 'm not only not responsible for your salvation i 'm not responsible for my salvation. God is responsible for our salvation. Our responsibility is simply proclaim how will they hear the truth of what Christ has done unless we speak? I began the service or the uh, sermon this morning by telling you the story about nicholas Winton there's one there's one more facet of his life that's particularly intriguing. While he was working to save those children for those eight months, he he began keeping a scrapbook. And so he took all of the names of those children whom he saved and he, he kept their addresses and he kept their birth dates and, and kept all of their information about them. And even when he could, he kept pictures of them together. And then when when his work was finished, he took that scrapbook and he closed it and he put it away. And it didn't see the light of day for 50 years until his wife found it in the late 1980s. And at her urging, he contacted the BBC to see if there was anyone still alive that came from those 664 that he had helped to save. And so... The BBC did some investigation and they, they called um, Nicky Winton and they brought him to an auditorium with a bunch of other people and they, they created and then showed in front of a live audience an episode called That's Life and, and unfolded the life of Nicholas Winton for everyone to see. At the end of that program, the announcer at the front of the auditorium said, Stand up. If you are someone whose life was saved by Nicky Winton, and every single person in that auditorium stood, every person gathered was a person that had been saved through his influence. When he died just a couple of years ago, Vera Eggermeyer said this about him. Nicky is a national hero here in the Czech Republic. In England, you don't know about him, but everywhere else we do. Listen, he did a kind act and never told anybody. That's really humble. It's kind of sweet. And it's really tragic. For 50 years, people walking around England, not just those 600 plus, but all of their families, undoubtedly thousands of people, all of them wanting to give thanks and no one to thank. Friend, we also know a better story of salvation, but God hasn't kept it a secret. He has unfolded to us the richness of how He has brought us to salvation. He has not been silent. And friend, this gives us reason not only to rest in Him, but also to worship Him and to give thanks. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I thought, what what do we do? In in response to this, What what do we do? That's the point. We do nothing. It's His work. Our response is to believe in faith and worship the One who has saved us. Our Father, we thank You for Your amazing provision of salvation. What a great God You are. What a great salvation You have provided for us. Would You cause us to rest in it, be content with it, rejoice in it, and believe in it all our days. And as we believe it, as we follow it, might the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, be honored and glorified. We pray in His name. Amen.